Shrinkwrap Radio number 878. Stephen Eisenstadt, Ph.D., discussing his new book, The Creative Matrix. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous it's all in your head and now here's your host dr dave my return guest is well-known Jungian author educator and dream worker dr stephen eisenstadt we'll be discussing his 2023 book, The Imagination Matrix, How to Access the Greatest Power You Have for Creativity, Connection, and Purpose. Now, here's the interview. <laughs> Dr. Steve Eisenstadt, welcome back to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. Good to be here. Yeah, I say welcome back because it's been 10 years uh, that we did uh, interview an interview here on your book Dream Tending. Yes, and now yet another book, and uh, and what a book it is! What a, a blockbuster book it is! And we're going to be talking about that in just a little bit. But one of the things I was wondering about is, I believe you were the founder of Pacifica Graduate School. Is that right? Yes, and you know what they say, once a founder, always a founder. So, okay, yeah. well, good, yeah, I'm glad they're not taking that that away from you. Uh, that, for anybody who is unaware, and I, I would think all of my listeners would be aware of it, but um, is the premier Jungian school to go to, if you know, in California, uh, in the Santa Barbara area? Yeah, we're located in Santa Barbara, two beautiful campuses here, um, and people internationally from all over come and gather, yeah, for yeah. a variety of programs. Yeah, and of course, I've had lots of guests over the years who either got their degree from there or who are on the faculty there, and um, so that's wonderful. And um, now in, in this new book, you make... Uh, reference to a whole new direction that you've gone in, which I was surprised, delightfully shocked <laughs> to see, United Nations and UNESCO. How did, how did that happen? Well, yes. So um, it began about, oh, I would say 20-something years ago, even more now a little bit. And um, I was teaching at Pacifica on the faculty. I was teaching a course in mythological studies and depth psychology. Uh, and one of the students actually worked for the Secretariat General of the UN, 
And they were gathering leaders, people, particularly heads of state from all over the world, two people from each country, to come together and to develop something called an Earth Charter. So it's called Earth Charter International, which is a set of soft guidelines that would then be translated into legal processes, procedures for countries worldwide looking forward to a sustainable planet. You know, there was ecological, the beginnings of awareness around the ecological crisis. Uh -huh. Now, what happened is I was there uh, at the UN. I was really one of the youngest people there at that point in time. Uh, and not the most experienced, obviously, not politically, and I was not a head of state by any means, but they invited me because uh, I was a proponent of a depth psychological point of view, an yeah. imagination-centered point of view. So the two people from the United States, Stephen Rockefeller and I, were invited, and I landed uh, at The Hague, you know, at The Hague, at the Peace Palace. Wow. Yeah, and um, there we met, and there were Oh, Gorbachev at that point in time was the chair. Marie Strong from Canada was the person presiding. Uh, and we spent four nights, five days, just nonstop. And these are people, of course, the heads of state, they were very engaged, involved, for sure. And they brought top people, diplomats and or ambassadors, people that were really working ecologically with enormous skill sets. And we were going on and on for all those hours. Wow. Until yeah, the story is at the very end. It was really quite something, actually. To this, just sharing the story now, I'm feeling my heart <laughs> begin to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I get up, and honestly, the level of dedication, sincerity, the intensity, really to make this work. You know, it included First Nations people. It included um, people that were really, really invested in what it was that we were trying to do. And then Gorbachev, I'll never forget. Took, stood up and said, look, you know, as chairperson, I pronounce, unfortunately, after all the good work and all the drafts and mega drafts and all the preparation that we did before getting there, um, you know, just to get anything into a document that is global worldwide is always a craft, you know, to make sure that the language works and that it is available oh, to yeah. and not offensive to anybody. And he said, you know, I announced, I have to say that I believe that we have failed in our pursuit. We have not been able to really bring to life what we wanted to. And of course, the gasp in the room was just extraordinary. And my heart just went, <clears throat> at that moment, I was standing at the podium next to speak, just because it was nothing planned, you know. And again, I was not the most experienced in the room. I went, whoa. And what happened at that moment was something else came through me. Um, and it was part of what was going on with me in Australia when I had the very extraordinary privilege to be with and talk story with Aboriginal elders of the dream time. Wow. And uh, a big dream happened in Australia. I was asked to visit a place called Guana Dreaming, which is in Australia's actual rock in Arnhem Land, which is sacred territory for the Aboriginals. And I heard something that was like, eight, ten months before, and I didn't know what it meant at all. There in Australia, in that tradition, in many traditions, you don't really interpret dreams. There's not dream analysis. You actually visit the place of the dreaming and listen. And the uh -huh. place of the 
dreaming offers guidance and support. Well, I felt something move through me. I remember I was with my 14-year-old son, and he was, you know, we were given permission. We were the only white people that were allowed back there, actually, because of uh, this elder who gave us that permission. And then when I was standing at that podium, the words just came. They just flowed out of me. Wow. And I would, I'm saying out of me, but certainly out of that dreaming impulse. And those words were, and I shared with the whole group, perhaps we're asking the wrong question. We're asking, what can we do to save the planet? And perhaps the question that we need to listen into is, what is the world, what is the planet asking of me, asking of us? What is the planet, the creatures, the landscapes, the buildings, the cities, what are they asking of us? Whoa, there was just absolute quiet in the room, for sure. I'll never forget, Gorbachev looked over, eyes <laughs> open, said yes. And Marie Strong said, let's do that. Um, and I went back to Pacifica. We started an initiative. The World Council of Churches were there. There were a whole variety of other networks that were available. And what we did was to listen to the planet. And the way we listened in is we listened through dream. Because when dreams come, the images, the landscapes, the activities, the actions that are involved in the dream time, those emotions that come forward, right? Uh, they generate from not only us personally, personal psyche, or the collective side, the collective unconscious, also from the world soul, the world psyche. So when we listen to the language of the ocean in the dream, or a house in a dream, or a building in a dream, and listen to it speak on behalf of itself through the images in the dream, we hear something of what is being asked of us. And we did this for a year, year and a half, went back to the UN, reconvened, Long story went on, right? Then politics got involved. There was the United States vetoed oh, it. Kind of, China vetoed kind of, But now yeah. it's up and going, up and running. Yeah. Wow. What an, what an incredible story and what an incredible opportunity to be there and, you know, with world leaders and taking part and something that could potentially save the planet. Uh, that uh, Talk about a, a humbling experience. That's that's got to take the cake. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. Uh, grounded in humility and um, service, for sure. It was, yeah. So I plan to ask you uh, what was the inspiration for this book, but I think maybe you just told us uh, uh, how long. Did, uh, the book covers an awful lot of ground. How long did it take you to write it? I would think it would involve a lot of time and, and struggle and study. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, it did. I was inspired by the work I was doing in dream tending, you know, and the more I've been working with dreams now over four decades, you know, I work with people, I work with my own dreams in the morning, and something began to occur, and it just comes right out of that story, truth be told, right? And what happened is that dreams come forward, and I listen carefully. I associate to the dreams and understand what's going on in our life and how that's related to the dream and the guidance that's available, the warnings, the teachings, and so on. I listen to the mythic motifs that are available in dreams and the stories, the teaching stories that are part of a collective psyche, all extraordinarily useful personally, emotionally, psychologically, physiologically. And two, I notice that there's something more. 
in dreams there is something of the pull of the future you know so the questions become who's visiting now what's happening here what is the dream's desire and that last question versus what does this mean what does it have to do with me you know the the person's yeah. which is useful it is it's just in addition there's something else and when i listen that way in working with dreams and tending the work with dreams with folks i notice that in each dream there is a portal of some sort there is an opening there is a doorway you know and to listen with ears that can hear in that way you know we can experience the way the dream offers itself not only to us personally collectively developmentally all extraordinarily helpful and to you know what opens in through that doorway through that portal and we open into a quality of imagination and what i call deep imagination the autonomous imagination it's a realm of experience a field of experience seen truly that really offers something something more wow and uh, this book uh, there's no way that we could cover everything that's in this book you know in this conversation so we'll just go where it wants to go we'll we'll try to be open to the pull of the future and see where, where it's pulling us although i've kind of you know i'll bring up topics that that are in the book and i realize that i haven't really announced the title i can't believe i didn't have it right here uh at top of my notes but the title of the book is the imagination matrix how to access the greatest power you have for creativity connection and purpose and that that's a tall order right there <laughs> it is a tall order and as you shared i spend about um you know a lifetime in the making actually where it originated probably most most clearly is when a place when i was 12 years old a place called zuma beach in california yeah outside of los angeles yeah um and then uh, what what happened when you were 12 oh and, oh. and zuma beach <laughs> <laughs> all right it's another story great the, okay well you know i'm 12 and i lived in the san fernando valley right it's a suburb out of uh, Los Angeles, and right over the mountains, just those foothills, the Pike Canyon Mountains, those mountains, there's a beach. And for all the people in suburbia, in the valley, um, that's the beach that we would go to. It's the closest yeah. one that was accessible. And my parents would take us on the weekends, you know, that's part of what we did in the summer, um, maybe even every other weekend. It was a very safe, family-oriented beach. Lifeguard stands one place to the next big places where it says food you go get your food yeah, yeah. you know you got it. it's just a a perfect family oriented beach and yeah. so many people i mean just people everywhere friendly safe you know supervised um and there was always this this um idea that there is a jetty on the left side that los angeles south side and it went out out into the ocean from the sand and the idea was you would never go on the other side of that jetty not really because that that's not part of the speech well you know i'm 12 
naturally curious, like many of us are. I mean, it would be probably in this conversation, there wasn't a sense of curiosity that sparked our sensitivity and all else of what goes into being part of this world. Uh, so the tide went out. It was a minus tide, which meant the tide went really far out. And my parents would always tell us, hey, be careful. There are no lifeguard stands. You just stay here where your supervisor Right, yeah. You so got the best of me, of course, right? Yeah. So I went way out, and I walked around the jetty because there was sand to do that and went to the other side. And on the other side of that jetty was something extraordinary for me. First, there were no people, right? Very few people. Um, and actually, the three or four people that I saw, I remember I'm 12, so I'm not really, but, you know, even without bathing suits, if you know what I'm saying. So it was kind of like a little bit of a nude beach, but more importantly, it was, I wasn't captivated at all by that at that age. What I was captivated by was that the tide went out and those tide pools were incredible, you know, and the rock that came out of the sea and the little uh, entities, the little fish and the, the kelp and oh my goodness everything was moving around it was just illuminated truly uh and i was just sitting and just sitting and noticing and watching and i heard a voice i did it was right behind me uh -huh. and the voice said did you know that rocks can talk Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. i mean i knew that but i never shared that with anybody and nobody else <laughs> Right? Did you know that rocks could talk? I looked around, and it was a person. He was maybe a 17-year-old, I think, 17, 16, 17, 18-year-old surfer. He had just had a surfboard. He was walking by, noticed me there, and simply shared that. I was taken. Rocks could talk, which started the whole work of listening to soul, psyche in the world, as if the voices of things are in the actuality of the places, landscapes, creatures of the world. And animated world, you know, an experience that many traditions and certainly many peoples throughout human experience have had. We've lost that pretty much in modern society, but in the right. world, right? Well, that touched me deeply. Uh, yeah. then, you know, hours went by, I looked up and oh my goodness, right? The tide. <laughs> I was wondering if that was going to happen. <laughs> That's what happened. The tide came way in. And I, oh, so I just took off and really literally kind of went fast, ran a little bit to get just around in time the other side. And of course, yeah. like, every, everything's the same over there. It's the civilized side of the beach, right? Um, the lifeguard stands are there. The food stands are there. Everybody's there with their families. And my mom sees me. She says, hey, Steve, where have you been? And what am I going to say? Where have you been? I've been on the other side of the beach where rocks can talk. And then yeah. I just said, I was just walking about, and I'm back here now. Everything is good. I'm safe. She goes, oh, great. Hey, you know, you've been gone a little longer than I'd like, so be conscious of that. But that moment changed my life. And honestly, you mentioned Pacifica Graduate Institute. As I got into the field of depth psychology, you know, and started to study people, and I was working with Joseph Campbell at the time, and we got very close, and he would visit constantly to Pacifica. And then the work of Marion Whitman, and then Jim James Hillman, uh, his work came forward. And uh, the whole idea of the world alive, psyche, soul in and of the world, which became Pacifica's mission statement, motto, its mission statement, anima mundi calende gratia, 
for the sake of tending psyche, soul, in and of the world, the peoples, the places, the animals, the landscapes. So, yeah, that I think that just now that we're talking, that story, yeah, which I haven't thought and, about. And, and so Pacifica, uh, so it's kind of on the Pacific, and I'm wondering if somehow, how did that name get adopted? <laughs> stories, I love these stories. I haven't shared them. <laughs> Great. Because we tried everything, honestly. When we became this institution, I have not shared the story in decades and decades and decades. We uh, tried a lot of things. We didn't know what our name would be. I mean, we evolved. We found a location. We started a campus, uh, you know, and we evolved from a community counseling center in a little place in Ala Vista, which is right next to the University of California, Santa Barbara, a student community. But then we became a school, a university, right? And all that went into evolving that. And so what will our name be? I tried a lot. I tried, um, well, first we tried just talking with, you know, our elders. So I asked Ross Woodman, Marion Woodman. I asked Joe, Joseph Campbell. And we came up and we tried Blake Institute. I'll never forget. I called Ross Woodman, who's a Blake scholar, one of the top scholars internationally. Hey, Ross, we're thinking of naming the institution Blake University. What do you think? Blake Institute. He laughed. And then he said, Stephen, one thing you never want to do is name this Blake University. And you know how much I cherish, honor, respect, and teach the work, his work. But it's too complicated. He's too complicated. The whole thing is too complicated. <laughs> this what you know, this wisdom coming in from these elders. So it was one thing after that. Then we thought, well, okay, maybe that's not the right approach. Let's try something else. So then we thought, what names would people really identify with, right? Then we thought, well, how about Evergreen University? Just came up with the name. Um, that kind of didn't go over so well because of a, a big uh, housing development just opened <laughs> six miles, 10 miles up the coast, evergreen. You know? So that didn't quite work. Then we thought, well, we'll go to advertisement, an agency. Agencies know how to do this, right? We'll do yeah, that. right. <laughs> Commercially, we'll do that. Uh, that didn't work. We had like... We had like a name every two months, and I'll never forget, we were at the new campus for the first years, and that first group of students, they got t-shirts, and they put the six names that we tried out, they put them on the shirt, crossed out, crossed out, crossed out. <laughs> Funny. So they were laughing. They were like, hey, you changed the name again? <laughs> you know, again? So what happened finally is, to answer your question very directly, I was up in Port Townsend, Washington uh, State, and I was with... Uh, my mentor, uh, a Jungian analyst, an extraordinarily gifted human being, Russ Lockhart, Russell Lockhart. And I slept one night, and um, in the dream, the dream did open to the imagination. And out of this deep well of imagination came the word Pacifica. Ah, Pacifica. So it came not from my mind, not from the rational mind, from the dream time. Not from the, the advertising agency. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it just did not. And then came anywhere. And then it just, the, I thought, well, Pacifica, it found us. We're on the Pacific Ocean anyway, so there's some relevance, right? Pacifica has that quality, you know, of the generativity in her. And um, so that's what came forward. And honestly, once that name 
came forward, it was just immediately embraced. It had a life of its own, truly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great story and, and, and another great experience. And what a privilege you had to be able to uh, to become friends with these seminal figures in the Jungian movement. Um, you know, that's that's just precious there. I, I you know... By the way, I grew up in Los Angeles, and the beach, I, I didn't go to that beach. I went to other beaches like Venice and and uh, Santa Monica beaches. And um, that was a, a, probably had a big impact on my psyche as well. And I've never thought about it before in terms of, say, my career. Uh, but... I do recall that when I went away to college, uh, to which turned out to to be the University of Pennsylvania initially, and then the University of Michigan, and so on, um, and Montana University, of Montana. But there was this longing for the beach. That's what I missed, uh, and there were experiences that I had at the beach. Where again the tide situation, there was a there was a, a beach which I recall, and I was you know being a kid, I had not reached my full height yet, and I'm hearing another voice cut in. Did you hear that? No. Hmm. It's a little bit of an echo. I hope that I hope that doesn't uh, continue to be a problem. It only happens when I talk. Maybe I'm not supposed to talk, but I want to finish the story. <laughs> so, being not having not having my full height, I would I would go out as far as I could by kind of bouncing. There'd be sort of like hills in the sand, and I would bounce between those hills. And um, but again, there was that danger of getting caught too far out. But it did have a profound impact on my psyche. And of course, I probably had lots of dreams about the ocean. I'll have to look back in my in my dream journals. Um, so this this is uh, w wonderful. So I'm still getting that echo a little bit too bad. <laughs> we'll continue on. That is very distracting. You know how when, if you get feedback on your voice, it jams you up so that you can't talk? Totally. Yeah, it's very challenging. It is. Yeah, so uh, maybe I'm not supposed to talk. So uh, I sort of marked, you know, a bunch of the, uh, the things in the book. You talk about um, the source code of imagination, Tell us about that. Yes. And for me, we're born with that blueprint. We're born with the blueprint of our becoming. I believe that. I believe each of us uh, arrives with that inheritance. And I think human experience arrives with a particular code, so to speak, that originates not only in our family of origin. It's not our life script, not other people's expectations. There's a certain kind of authenticity 
an innate calling or genius that is available. And that unfolds when we access these realms of deep imagination. And I go through it in the imagination matrix in the book. You know, I just take the time to really slow that down and go through it in, in detail, elaboration and story, example, um, and also offer a whole variety of, of ways of gaining access. And one way is just what you were describing, you know, when you were talking about being at the beach and as a kid bouncing up <laughs> around the sea. I mean, what was happening is you're in child play. We all have some recollection of that for the most part. Yeah. We're in the child's mind. We're not childish, but we are in the spontaneity of that kind of imaginal play. And we're following something. We're following curiosity. We get curious and we allow curiosity to come forward. And oh my goodness, you know, the research that's come forward in relation to curiosity, when we can tap into curiosity, uh, something different happens, right? We begin to shift our experience. We we go into a, a theta mind rather than in an alpha-centered mind, which means that we have a different quality of, of experience, which can be measured. And I spent years, as you mentioned, in research, qualitative and quantitative. When we are in that place, um, something opens that's different than what we're ordinarily experience it's not programmed uh, and we're all subject now to so many codes programmers codes you know that we're, just yes. bombarded, we're bombarded with the media of every kind the you know, screen time is ubiquitous it's everywhere right oh, fantastic it's wonderful and too when it's too much uh, then of course there's there's trouble and I'll, I'll share this i just got back just a week or two ago from china and I'll share that story, which has a lot to do with what we're talking about now. Before I do, though, curiosity. Curiosity, you know, clinically, therapeutically, when I'm working with people or when I'm supporting folks in their own training to become therapists, clinicians, um, I really, really put value in opening the curious mind because you really can't be curious when I'm curious. I mean, authentically curious. I'm not anxious. And when I'm authentically curious, I'm not depressed. You can't be really curious in that way and depressed and or anxious at the same time. They're reciprocal inhibitors. So opening curiosity just in and of itself has its own value. And in turn, right, it opens our system physiologically, yeah, and emotionally to a different rhythm, to a different cadence. And we become much more resonant to what we've been talking about, to what is the rhythm of nature, right? The rhythm, the deeper rhythm that fills us. And it, there is so much research now that links that quality of curiosity to creativity, innovation, ingenuity. I mean, it's no wonder that every that institutions from Harvard Business School to so many creativity incubators that are now embedded in bigger institutions and corporations have really discovered that opening creativity, opening what we're talking about, that quality of being curious, the curious mind, not the rational or the analytic mind only. Obviously, there's a place for that. It's incredibly important. It's how we conduct business and maneuver and you know get get around in the world it, it, it's important and too though not at the full expense of our creative life 
And that's where the imagination matrix takes us into our creativity, into that curiosity. And I'll tell you, just as I said, I got back from China and um, oh my goodness. Okay, China is very similar. And of course, when I say I got back from China, uh, China first is a big place. I mean, New York City is something of a <laughs> suburb. <laughs> you know, in Los Angeles, the big metropolitan areas in the United right. States. And that's compared to oh, all kinds of Beijing or all kinds of Shanghai. That It's, you know, it's big in proportion. But uh, one of the things that's going on in China and other places as well is that ch uh, young people, when they get into their late teens, early 20s, and they've grown up now with so much technology, they're on screen a lot, you know, uh, that they have drifted away from being in relationship with the body. And that's happening in the United States as well, as we know, right? The too muchness of screen time creates all kinds of psychological afflictions, everything from cy cyber bullying, right, to cyber addiction, and the list goes on and on. So there's all kinds of ways of trying to come at that. That's one of the initiatives that's going on in the field of psychology at the moment, how to protect humanity or sustain humanity or keep in connection to our humanity in an increasingly technological age. In fact, the whole yeah. chapter of the book on Imagination Matrix is that. In China, here's the, here's the challenge. Young people in their late teens, early 20s, are not connecting with other young people, particularly with people of another gender, right? In whatever way that plays out. Birth rates are are just crashing because there's not people are not connecting they're not being intimate they're not being sexual for the most part. these are big generalizations but it is a natural uh, national crisis um so much so that the government has noticed uh, and what they've done is that they have asked all universities and colleges in china for the first year of study for students one of the three or four courses needs to be on what it is to be in human relations. Okay, so there huh. is a course on dating. There is a course on when you call somebody up, what you say, how you respond, how, what kind of date you go on, what you do afterwards, what it is to touch, how it is to touch. I mean, remarkably so. Now, we're not at that place, obviously, in the United States, and it would be silly for me to generalize, say, all of China's there. But and at the same time, it is true, and it is escalating as a, a national crisis. Well, I've, I've heard so that the there's something similar going on in this country. That there is, a, yeah. you know, there's a, a dec decline in sexuality. Again, again, I'm getting distracted by hearing an echo. Are you able to put on headphones? I am not, uh, but I I hear, I do not hear an echo at all. Yeah, but it could be uh, that could be a solution. But if you don't have any headphones, earbuds, earpods, AirPods, nothing yeah. like that. No, I'm not ever run into this. In okay, oh well, I, I have run, I've run into it before, and now it's not happening at the moment. So I um, I really like this concept of the curious mind of of thinking of that as a separate mind state, um, 
enough to to reify it by giving it, you know, calling it the curious mind. And one of the ways that I relate to it is, is uh, aside from the fact that I've been doing these interviews forever, you know, and 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 people have remarked. Uh, one of the positive things that people have said is they've remarked on my curiosity, and um, and and partly where that comes from me is I did a stint of for a number of years. I went into market research because I sort of felt like I topped out in academia and I was looking for new challenges. The computer revolution was happening. I wanted to get involved. And that led to me getting involved in market research. So I mostly apprenticed myself to a guy who emphasized curiosity and that you, when you went in to talk about a product or talk with consumers leading a, 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 a research group, um, that you had to come at it with curiosity. Yeah. Yeah, it does open things up. And that is the way in to what I named the imagination yeah. matrix, into the autonomous imagination. You follow curiosity. And what I talk about in the book is a way of doing that. So for me personally, when I get up in the morning, first thing I'll do is listen and write down the dreams that I do remember or fragments or images that come forward. Second thing that I do is I'll do a kind of opening curiosity exercise, a kind of active imagining exercise. And then I go to what I call in the book, a dig. And when, in fact, I'm just about to do a workshop on the imagination matrix. And what I'll do is share with people the ways of accessing, finding companions, soul companions, I offer the name, and then accompanying them into imagination and really journeying. And people are journeying now in a variety of different ways, in all kinds of mediums. But to allow those figures of psyche, of soul, those figures that come into the come in dream time or in an act of imagining, a waking dream, awake or a sleeping dream, and being one of the many, you know, joining the group and going on journey and going into a place of discovery again curiosity is key right and going into discovery yeah and wandering about the four quadrants i name of imagination is quite uh, extraordinary what we learn what we pick up the intelligence that comes forward is, is really something you mentioned the four quadrants of the imagination and that was a, a part of the book that caught me what are the four quadrants and particularly one of them seem mysterious to me. So what are the four quadrants? Oh, Earth, of course. Um, and the, 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 I'm going to name the four quadrants, and then they interrelate, intersect, you know, they find one another. But certainly there's the quadrant Earth, which is the regenerative capacities of the rhythms found in nature and the intelligence embedded in the natural mind, so to speak, in the natural places mind and when i say mind i am talking about the imaginal mind so the soul-centered mind i'm talking about the the polytheistic mind the many of the mind 
of imagination. And important, that quadrant, right? And the third is machine. And machine, I mean functionality. Um, so it's everything from a early machine, hammer, saw, <laughs> a bicycle, to computer now in technology and beyond. Um, that's important now because... That, that was the one that struck me that I was curious about. You know, this list of of things that uh and then machine but yeah. we we are we live in a world of machines that's for sure we do recently and, and our body is machine oriented right so there's a kind of functionality that's important to bring into consideration uh -huh. things work how we interact how you know it's so important because part of what i go into is how working in imagination is so helpful in healing practices. So I've done a lot of work with integrative medicine, you know, and working with uh, physicians and working with imagination in relation to helping to develop uh, protocols for healing, you know, uh, in a complementary way. Um, and machine is very important that way, the body and how the body works and how, how the body interacts uh, with imagination is really essential. So that is the third quadrant. And the fourth quadrant is that kind of overlay, the universal, right? The more transcendent quality, uh, the cosmos itself. And when we begin to experience imagination in a matrix that essentially interrelates, interconnects, taking into account those four elemental qualities, uh, then we are in a place that I think that really opens itself up and animates, or what I say, illuminates imagination in ways that are very, very helpful. Uh, you know, I'm a therapist, and before that, a professor, before that, a school teacher. So my interest is not in the esoteric. My interest is in how this work really comes home, you know, how this work really supports a well-being, sense of well-being, and life purpose, a kind of additional sense of identity and belonging. Yeah. yeah. Now, we haven't really talked about the structure of the book, but in some ways it's like a workbook with um, with exercises such as you were referring to, you know, in terms of uh, awakening the imagination mind and or the curiosity mind. And... Um, and so the lazy part of me has a skeptical question that I wanted to ask you about, uh, which is, I could imagine this being very effective in a group experience with a leader, but as a book that I'm reading, I gloss over that, you know, even though this is supposedly something that part of my job and so on, but it doesn't... I know I'm not going to do those exercises. Um, so what, and I think that's not just me. I think there is a human tendency in that direction for some of us who are not, ter say, terribly introverted and just can just jump into, yes, I'm going to spend lots of time just being with myself and opening, you know. So what are you doing to address that? I, I heard you mention workshops. I assume yeah. you, you you I assume you want to build something in to, to address this. Well, there you know there's a community community is so important. The outer community of our 
friends, family, you know, colleagues. That community is so essential for support, for conversation, for engagement, you know. There's also an inner community, and those that inner community consists of those figures that I was naming, the soul companions, and I named them in the book, and I offer ways of making contact and, yes, an exercise, <laughs> so to speak, of how to sustain a quality of contact. But when you bring those two together, when you bring people together in community and together we are working through some of this material, it's extraordinary what begins to happen. Honestly, it's just heartfelt. Um, so yeah, as you named that I am doing workshops on the Imagination Matrix and people can find that under Dream Tending, the website. Um, one's coming up in the spring. Uh, and I think that really is it. When people are having are these in person dreams or uh, in person groups or or Zoom groups, I do both. I'll do one group Zoom, and that I do a lot of that uh, because there's a lot of folks internationally that gather. And then I do groups in person. We'll be doing three different groups on the campuses of Pacifica in this next year. So there's different ways of doing it. People really enjoy being. Uh, in location, in residence, in a living community, interacting with one another. And there, of course, we're here in Santa Barbara, so we were talking about the ocean. <laughs> you can actually, we take time to actually walk to the ocean and, and be part of that environment as well. Uh, and two, though, you know, it is remarkable when we gather online in community, what's possible when it's just not information overload. So the exercises that you uh, alluded to, I'll offer them and people will work with them in their home place. You know, there's a little bit of guidance there and leadership. And then they'll get connected in smaller groups of four or five in breakout rooms online and then yeah. gather back into the bigger community and have conversation. Oh, I just finished yesterday at about three o'clock, uh, a whole gathering of folks. And it was, it's just heartfelt. It's so wonderful to be with others that have the same sensitivity, the same interest that are bring their heart and vulnerability. And we create the safety, you know, that's required. We need safety, support, protection in order to really engage because not all the figures that we meet in imagination are friendly, of course, right? Like in dreams, you know? In fact, yeah. what's, what's true now is that more people than ever before are remembering dreams. The International Association of Study of Dreams just did a big research uh, study on that and the remembering dreams is really at an all-time high and of course with that comes nightmares the nightmarish the intolerable the difficult the challenging so how do we work with those figures you know how do we tend to those figures in a way that is not so um, frightening and crippling and we know that if we just try to push them away or psychologize them only or medicate them away um, that's not the full answer is it helpful at times yes is it the full answer not really because they tend to just come right back you know three nights later four weeks later something in awake life re-stimulates and there's that experience that then evokes something that is problematic in deep imagination though when we're journeying in imagination through a process that i offer of kind of really working with those images to find their generative quality oh my goodness those figures perhaps as much as any figure, uh, becomes so helpful in terms of offering guidance and opening the inquiry. You know, they really 
they do provide incredible support and intelligence as we journey into those realms of imagination or yeah. those, those quadrants. Yeah, one place that comes up where I, I, where I've experienced some of what you're talking about is uh, I have a former student who took a deep dive into uh, shamanism. Uh, and he's written a bunch of books. You may know him or be familiar with him, Alberto Violdo. And uh, so we were looking at the possibility of me becoming one of his one of the people in his network. And so I went to a, a, sh a couple of his shamanistic trainings, and uh, it was very powerful. It was, and and a lot of the power of it was just doing it with other people, making it really experiential and using your, you know, giving yourself license to go into imagination and not to worry about, well, is this really, is this really this or that, but just to see what comes up. And I had some powerful experiences as a result of that. Yeah. And just uh, what you just shared, to see who or what comes forward. Yeah. And not to bring the rational mind and to analyze too quickly, to interpret too quickly. No, you know, we are with our soul companions, our figures, our inner community. And there we are together, journeying in these realms and noticing who comes forward and what offerings they have, you know, what, what those visitations bring to us. It is a remarkable experience and it really has, you know, there is a sense truly of homecoming, right? There is a sense of coming home to something, yes. you know, really deeply felt. And then we yeah. in turn have a sense of belonging, belonging yeah. a deep belonging. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I really, uh, from talking to you particularly, I get the sense of uh, the power of all of this and, uh, and, and your own wonderful stories that you've shared with us here. And, uh, and I'm sure there's so many <laughs> more stories that, uh, that you can pull out. Um, so, as we start to wrap up here, amazingly, because you know we've not covered the whole book or anything, but who do, who do you see as your target audience? Oh, well, I think uh, you know now the book is out and it, people are purchasing it and working with it, and there are workshops that are happening. Um, there's I th there are three different groups that seem to be really coming forward. And then there's some intention that I have. The groups are certainly people that are, um, are are creatives and like to explore the people that are journeying and experiencing what it's like to touch into these, what Joseph Campbell, the outer reaches of inner space, right? And the inner reaches of outer space. You know, uh -huh. Those folks, the journeyers, the creatives, they certainly are resonating quite deeply and beautifully. And the people that are experiencing journeying in the varieties of ways using all kinds of methods and means, um, they very much have resonated to this work. So it has its really, you know, it really pairs very well with that group of folks. Another group that is really coming forward, I know this might be startling, um, people in corporate 
America. So people that are uh, in leadership teams, CEOs, founders of companies, because there's a valuing now. I was just uh, just the other week, I was in Los Angeles working with a, a, a very highly regarded company of uh, young professionals. They're all in their 20s and early 30s, uh, working, you know, <laughs> nonstop with technology, doing right. marketing of one sort or the next. And I was invited in by their uh, CEO and by the founder, actually. And what was going on is, yeah, they've been successful for sure that. And they noticed that there was a wane happening in the company with the employees, you know, starting to burnout was happening. Um, there was, you know, a kind of, so, you know, I was asked in to reignite or re-enliven imagination. And I offered some of the things that we're talking about and other skills and ideas. And oh my, it was so heartfelt. I can't tell you. You know, I can remember a time when I'd go into a, a company like that or a, an institution like that. And as soon as we would say anything about being a therapist, there would be, ooh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, not that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just a yearning, a welcoming of yeah. imagination and being back in touch and curiosity. Oh my gosh. And these folks are so capable and bright and gifted and they're so successful. But they knew that there was something missing now, you know, quote, the magic was missing, you know, that. Yeah. And, and I've heard that uh, a lot of, uh, some of those folks are uh, going to psychedelic workshops to, uh, uh, to touch into those places. And of course there's this, sort of a third wave boom of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Uh, do you have any sort of take on that? What's your sense of, of that? It is very popular for sure that, uh, and Pacifica has just uh, offered a conference. It is popular. And I think the work, the tools that we're working with in this book in the imagination matrix, beautiful companion to sure. those journey. It really truly are. You know, uh, with in, important guidance and safety, support, protection, um, you know, there's certain substances that do evoke imagination. And there's a lot of new experimentation going on with that. Um, and too, without those substances, you know, and with some support and some guidance, it really is extraordinarily possible to open imagination by following the curious mind and doing some of the things that we've talked about. We're working now, you asked the, some of the audiences, we're working with school teachers and children to remember, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Child's play to bring that back in. Uh, one of the groups that I'm working with is working with nurses to bring that back into their professional life. So there's a, a lot of people that are, are buying in and, you know, really taking the journey along these paths, yeah. Well, I think we probably need to wrap it up. Um, I, I want to thank you. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say that you haven't had a chance to get in here? <laughs> well, I think one thing. There's this curious thing that happened along the way in writing the book. I noticed that another kind of intelligence was evolving. I mean, we know about intellectual intelligence, IQ, you know. We know about emotional intelligence. We now know something about artificial intelligence. We know about embodied intelligence. I mean, these are things, something else started to happen, which I named imaginal intelligence. 
and it comes out of IQ four is what we just gave it up, and uh, has to do with journeying in these four quadrants in the way that we've been talking about. It increases, and when that increases, it really is measurable. I mean, we spent years doing qualitative and quantitative research, noticing how imaginal intelligence increases and therefore creativity and well-being does the same. Uh, so it was quite something. And I think that's where really a lot of us are really wanting to work more fully and deeply to allow and offer ways of bringing that forward and bringing that into ourselves personally, into our community life, into our workspace. Yeah. It's another question that uh, comes to mind, which is you talked about the pull of the future. What, you know, and it's possible to go into great despair about uh, about the future, given the, the climate crisis and all the other the wars that are going on What's your sense of of that pull? Are you able to talk about that? Where, where, where do you feel like we're being pulled? Well, yes. I mean, without question, just as you're naming, we don't need to go through that because we all know it, right? Yeah. The thing is, children know it too because they're open, they're sensitive, they feel it. They may not have words or concepts, but they get it. Their animal body knows what it knows. Their instinctual body knows what it knows. And there's danger. It's true. So what are we going to do? I mean, you know, can't go into the third extinction. You know, we can't go in the sixth extinction. We can't keep going that way. So we need something new. And we, we have the capacity. I mean, it is encoded in us, the next evolution. I don't believe that we are coded to destroy ourselves or the planet. I don't think so. But I do believe, I mean, some people may go there in the dire places and talk evolutionary theory and all that, but I, no, I think the, the bigger impulse is to move forward into well-being, creativity, frankly, bigger than anything, love. And when we open our imagination, when we really journey in imagination, you know, we meet the beloveds, we meet that sense of deep care, compassion, love, and that in turn generates the next possibilities, the pull of the future. And when we gather in small groups, I mean, I know that's conceptual, when we actually gather in small groups, when people are come forward from the workshop, we go around and listen as people share what, what's happened to them as a result of taking these journeys, oh my goodness, they are feeling a renewed sense of purpose, of care, of community of participation their heart is warmed and opened you know and again there's no need for me to romanticize or idealize i just been doing this for too many years not helpful the actuality is though to be in community and to be in imagination to open curiosity really does open the next possibilities yeah well thank you that's a beautiful close and uh so, Dr. Steve Eisenstadt, it's great to talk to you again, experience you again, and uh, uh, keep up your very important pioneering work. Wow, 
Wow, what an inspiring chat I had with today's guest. Of course, I'm referring to return guest Steve Eisenstadt, Ph.D., whom I interviewed 10 years ago about his book on dream tending. He's not only a well-known Jungian author, educator, and dream worker, but notably the founder of the Pacifica Graduate Institute, which is the place for earning college-accredited degrees in Jungian psychology and psychotherapy. As you may already be well aware, many of my previous guests have been either faculty or graduates of that wonderful school. In the interview, it occurred to me out of the blue to ask how the school got its name. Turns out it was a long and tortured process with many name changes along the way. They even hired an advertising agency to generate a list of possible names, but none of those names made the grade. Of course, the name emerged for Steve from his intuitive mind, and it immediately felt right to everyone. The purpose of our interview today was to discuss Steve's latest book, The Imagination Matrix, How to Access the Greatest Power You Have for Creativity, Connection, and Purpose. Now that title might sound a little grandiose, but it's based on Steve's 40-plus years of Jungian study and personal friendships with such Jungian greats as James Hillman, Marian Woodman, Joseph Campbell, among others. The book presents an integrated model for a cognitive understanding of the unconscious and how to access it. It's also a workbook with exercises. I opined that I think it would work best as part of a group process. Indeed, Steve confirmed the power of combining self-study with group sharing both during in-person workshops at the Pacifica campus and in online Zoom presentations and breakout groups. You'll find details and schedules at the dreamtending.com website. I salute Dr. Eisenstadt as a pioneer and visionary. The power and effectiveness of his work is already well-documented. Be sure to listen to the segment in our interview in which he describes his work with the United Nations and UNESCO. I feel privileged to know him and to bring this life-changing work to you. Hi, Dr. Dave. Tim here. I'm a psychologist from the Gold Coast, Australia. I was thinking recently it was about time I got off my butt and contributed some money to your wonderful program. It's given me so many hours of pleasure and education especially on the drives to work. And I think it's important to support your mighty efforts, Dr. Dave. So I'd urge everyone out there to donate, contribute some money to make sure your show, very fine show, Shrink Rat Radio, is around for a very long time. Okay, see you later. Thank you, Tim, psychologist there on the Gold Coast of Australia. Tim, I'm doing everything I can to keep the show going. And I appreciate your feedback. Thank you for your donation and for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, Stephen Eisenstadt, PhD, Jungian educator and dream worker, discussing his new book, The Imagination Matrix, How to Access the Greatest Power You Have for Creativity, Connection, and Purpose. 
I'm so impressed by his visionary and pioneering work. Our next guest will be Professor Amy Harbin on the ethical importance of fearing well. You heard that right, fearing, F-E-A-R-I-N-G, fearing well. You won't want to miss this one. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.